fake news has become the news at the moment, especially when Donald Trump is dismissing a story he doesn't like. But the problem is that it turns out there really is fake news, invented either by Macedonian teenagers, spun by fake news outlets to earn advertising on Facebook, Russian and US propaganda, all in an environment where many people don't trust mainstream journalism anyway. In the studio this morning to parse and analyse the news are Hugh Linehan, culture editor of the Irish Times, Harry Brown is a lecturer in journalism and DIT, and Marie Boren writes about technology at the Irish Times, and she's a PhD researcher at the School of Future Journalism in DCU. Tell us what you think fake news is and how we should tackle it. 53106 for 30 cent and at talking.nt for your tweets. Um, Harry Brown, will you kick us off and try and give us your definition of what you think oh, fake no. news is? I was afraid you were going to come to me <laughs> first, sir. Fake news. I, I, I think fake news was, is a term that clearly has lost any particular focused meaning, I think, as your introduction has sort of indicated there. I think it was probably useful for about one minute there, yeah. about three or four months ago, when we could identify particular kinds of clickbait that were, uh, you know, designed to deceive and designed to attract attention. Um, you know, and you talked about the Macedonians, but the Macedonians weren't producing that material. They were grabbing that material from around the Internet, the most attractive, the most partisan in the in the case of the election. And they were packaging and pushing it out on social media. And in effect, they were monetizing the kind of partisan instincts of people coming up to the election. But, of course, one of the interesting things about those Macedonians is that they were doing it before the election. They were doing it, for instance, with health. So they were there was fake news about supplements about about fake news about diet regimes you know there was and some of it was fake and some some of it was false and some of it was true just as the material that they put out for the election was but just as with the partisan fake news in the context of politics these people are not trying to get Donald Trump elected they're trying to exploit our desire for attention that feeds either in the case of politics it feeds our partisanship or in the case of health, feeds our desire for a cheap fix, for a quick way to avoid having to go to the doctor, all that sort of thing. So in effect, what we've got is a situation where we've kind of stumbled into a system of communication technology in which the kind of the economics of attention allow these uh, players, you know, from Google down to the Macedonian teenagers, and Google makes a lot more money on this than the Macedonian teenagers do, that allows them to exploit certain aspects of kind of human personality, our tribalism on the one hand and our desperations on the other hand. Uh, Marie Boren, so uh, as Harry has led us to this point where this is about commercialism and it's about Mm, the Internet, will you explain to us how this system works outside of any thoughts about propaganda or elections? Yeah, because, well, it all works due to the algorithm or what set of instructions or recipes are to get to get um, search results to appear in lists of one to ten on Google or to get these trending topics on Facebook. So the algorithm essentially isn't really favouring any hyper-partisan stories or telling you you like this because you're left or right. It just wants to keep you clicking through so that ads beside it on Facebook get clicked on and people make money. Um, so it's not, but but it is, I agree with Harry, it's all about, it's emotional. It's emotionally driven clickbait. But it it works in conjunction with technology that we're now talking about, fake news. We've always had propaganda and we've always had stories that, you know, about the these miracle pills like cures for cancer. But now it's become intertwined with our attention economy and social media. So, it, so, and tell me about now personalization. So, when I look up something on Google, or I'm not on Facebook, but if I have a Facebook timeline or feed, 
how is the news that comes into either my search results or my Facebook page tailored? Well, if we look at back in the day before personalization existed, you just went onto Google and you weren't you weren't anything. You were just someone typing in keywords and they put back out what they thought was the best kind of result. And now it's completely different because your Google search account is linked to your Gmail. It's linked through these third party advertisers to Facebook, your activity on LinkedIn, Snapchat, WhatsApp, Amazon, everything. So everything you do is connected to something else. And every time you search for something like this morning, I looked at Hillary Health because it was one of those things that people are talking about. It was very much fake news. And my Google search results were very different compared to looking at it in incognito mode, which is where you log in without a user account. Oh, the incognito yeah. thing. I thought people only use that for porn, but um, they can use <laughs> well, it to if actually they use it for compare. Porn, Google can still tell a lot about them because <laughs> incognito isn't really incognito. It can actually tell a lot about you, like your IP address, where exactly in Dublin you are. Um, it knows your internet service provider um, and the device you're using and how long you've logged on for. So incognito isn't neutral in and of itself. Aren't there other search engines? I think I saw on something like DuckDuckGo or something. DuckDuckGo. Now, what happens there? Well, it's great if you're completely paranoid (laughs) because (laughs) it doesn't leave any traces behind. And we talk about these, um, everybody's probably heard of cookies. So they're they're basically trackers that follow you from one website to the next across the web. You mightn't see them. In fact, most of them are invisible. You can't see it. But after you log out of Facebook, and I don't mean just leave it, after you log out, it's still following you across to Twitter and Amazon. So these cookies can tell your activity so yeah if you are looking at porn or something like that and you haven't gone into incognito mode it will probably I presume it might serve up some contextualised ads in relation to that on Facebook now, much to your embarrassment and, and go back now to the Facebook feed so if someone is on Facebook and news is coming in what kind of news is coming into people's different Facebook pages this is actually from I would say even from week to week or month to month it's actually changing because Facebook is constantly tweaking its algorithm it's got what's known as trending uh, topics and it used to be that people would curate this in conjunction with an algorithm and their editors would pick you know, this is a good news story. It's trending, but I've also um, vetted it that it's an interesting story. And then uh, Facebook decided, let's get rid of the people because people are biased. Algorithms are pure and unsullied. And the algorithms naturally pick the stories that look like they were performing best. But these stories happen, a lot of them happen to be fake news, blatantly untrue or conspiracy theories. But the algorithm can't see that. So it promotes it and people see it popping up in their newsfeed. But you're probably wondering why would that fake news story become popular in the first place? Yeah. Aren't people interested? Yes and no. So anybody can set up a Facebook page that links back to some, like the the Washington Tribune or so, with some fake um, news site that this guy in Florida had set up and he was earning $30,000 a month on the ads from it. But um, he, he's actually, he's a self-confessed liberal who decided to do it just for money and the fact that he wanted to see what would happen. So he has his Facebook page. The Facebook page um, can have clicks bought for it. So if you go onto Fiverr or any of these um, the sites where you just pay five euros for somebody to actually bots will like your page so your page overnight will look like it's got 10,000 followers and all the stories are getting likes and shares so this is driving it up and the algorithms scanning through the stories and it thinks wow this story is really popular I guess I should put it in the trending trending topics but it's a fake story fake liked by fake people and then all of a sudden it's in your newsfeed 
God, Hugh Linehan, you must be sitting there <laughs> in Tara Street going, oh my God, how are we supposed to cope with well, this? Well, yes and no, and I think God, there's so much there in what Maria said. Yeah. But just, to, just to touch on one of the one of the thing, I think themes underlying what she's described for your listeners there, apart from the fact they're going to change the, their internet habits this weekend, I suspect some of them having, <laughs> yeah. having, having, heard, having heard what she said. Uh, most people aren't going to use DuckDuckGo. The reality is that most people come to the internet and they use the most convenient services, and the most convenient services are the big ones because they've got the resources, they've been in the game longer, they're incredibly sophisticated. The job that Google does in pre-guessing what it is you're trying to find before you even half know it yourself sometimes is terrifying, but but uh, but also brilliant. Another thing is that a lot of the uh, some of the gaming techniques which uh, which Marie is describing there have been around for an awful long time. I mean, I was at meetings in the Irish Times ten or twelve years ago when we were discussing search engine optimization, which is a kind of a sub business of all this that has been around for almost two decades now, which is basically trying to trick Google to rank your content higher in search results. So that's been around for a long time and what she's describing in terms of Facebook is really just another version of that. And then beyond that, I think, for the purposes of today's conversation, the question of what Facebook does, the question of the world of technology, uh, this hyper-venture capitalist funded, uh, incredibly profitable startup culture coming from an engineering background, colliding into the traditional world of media and culture and society and how all those things operate is where you is where you really come to the crunch. So when Marie mentions the fact that Facebook were using human beings at one point to moderate content and to make decisions about what might appear in feeds, they 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 stopped doing that just around a year ago because they came under ferocious criticism for a liberal bias on yeah. the part of those human moderators. Now whether or not that criticism was correct, it scared the bejesus out of Facebook and they backed off. And as Marie says, they said we will let the value neutral algorithms yeah. carry out this task. Now, there's a couple of things to say about that. Algorithms are created by human beings and therefore they are not value neutral at all. They are designed. People get all this kind of, they start getting a bit woozy. I know I do when I start thinking about algorithms. What the hell is an algorithm? What does it look like? A very long equation. What does it look like? It's really, yes, it's really just a... a, 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 All it is is a a recipe. Just a set of instructions. It just says to something, you know, if you do A, then B happens. And if B happens, Hmm. then either C or D happens. It's really, it's it's complex, but it's not that difficult to understand what it is. But it it is built by human beings who go into meetings and talk to other human beings about what they're trying to accomplish with that. And usually the first item on the agenda at any meeting of that sort, understandably, in a company like Facebook or Google, Google, is how do we make more money out of it? So then that plugs yeah. back into the other thing which Marie is talking about, which is another thing that scares the bejesus out of newspapers and traditional <laughs> media organisations which is the whole underlying re- revenue model of things like programmatic advertising, which is really that advertising is bought by robots on behalf of large conglomerates and these huge kind of pieces of advertising inv- inventory, tens of thousands of page views, are really sold without very, very little human intervention. And that breaks the connection, the traditional connection that existed in the case of news media, for example, between the things that you do and the things that you say and the business that you're in and the profit and loss for, for, for good or ill. It breaks that and then therefore you have the Macedonian teenagers mm. but you also have people who, you know, you also have people, to be honest, people running companies saying, what the hell is my ad doing on Breitbart News? I didn't, you know, I don't want to be, That's I don't right. want my brand associated with them because there has been no human intervention, there's no possibility of making a decision. And yeah, Harry, so the idea of Irish Times ads for Irish Times readers beside Irish Times journalism is now a thing of the past. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. And Harry, on that, here's something that's even more sinister. Now I knew a bit about this because I actually used to work for a search engine but 
lot. Uh, a man called Eli Pariser um, was giving a TED talk on this a few years ago and about how there's no standard Google results, okay? Mm-hmm. And he got friends of his in different places around the world just to uh, look up Egypt, right? And they sent him screenshots of their result. So um, his friend Daniel didn't get any results about protests in Egypt at all in his first page of Google result and his friend Scott's were full of them. And it was the big story of the day but they were in different parts of the world on different kinds of machines they had their own different search uh, histories so they got different Google results and so how do you even fight back the only reason that we would see that as a really serious problem is if we sort of believe that there should be some kind of unitary sort of mythical public sphere that we all share exactly the same connections between different uh, phenomena when we say Egypt we want everyone to see the same thing why I don't I actually think that the the, the problematizing of that goes back to our myth of how we want our public discussions to happen we think that everyone should be looking at the same page and I actually think that that is a hopeless, a hopeless scenario. Anyway, it always was a hopeless scenario. We always had partisan newspapers, for example. I think, to some extent, this fake news thing is a, is a is part of the panic about you know the obvious loss of this kind of unitary public sphere. I have to say, you know, just I, I know Marie wants to come in, but just on yeah. the, on the. To some extent, we already know that the fake news panic in relation to the election was almost certainly overrated as a problem. The Columbia Journalism Review published a study. Now, it was kind of a preliminary study. I don't think it's been peer-reviewed, but that su- suggested that the, that the fake stuff, and they did a very broad definition of fake, was you know very small, less than 10% of the overall news material that was shared during the election, that it didn't exist in a bubble, that people were only reading fake news, people were moving between fake and real, usually on the same partisan side, but not, uh, not only in a fake bubble. And it wasn't exclusively about Trump. In fact, the three most popular items were uh, essentially pro-Hillary ones, the likes of, you know, Mike Pence said Michelle Obama is vulgar. Clutch your pearls now, liberals. How could they say <laughs> such a thing? You know, so there was, um, you know, the, I, I think that we kind of can get overwrought about this and, and uh, uh, about the effect on democracy when we really have to be asking Where's the democracy anyway? Yeah, know? and I, yeah. I think that's a good point because you can say, look, the real reason people voted for Brexit or Trump was nothing to do with fake news. It was their economic circumstances, you know, and their interpretation of the world. What do you think about the Susan Sarandon point? So she's been pretty much blamed for the election of Trump <laughs> because she was supporting Bernie Sanders and then refused to endorse Hillary Clinton. So, you know, it's all her fault. Uh-huh. And uh, so she has said, look, the people are awake And it's a kind of Nader-Leninist argument. Okay, this is all really bad, but at least now we're all sitting around here talking about it. Well, there's never been such conversation about politics in in, in my living memory. I mean, but unfortunately, it sort of tends to focus on the Donald Trump uh, phenomenon. The funny thing about the the Susan Sarandon and Bernie Sanders is that the Macedonian teenagers have told a couple of journalists that they couldn't fool Bernie Sanders supporters. They tried to put fake news out into the sort of Bernie Sanders sphere, but the Sanders voters were too smart and they never... (laughs) (laughs) They never kind of fell for that clickbait. Hooray! Marie, you wanted to get in there on a point. Um, I'll make two points now. But um, that idea of Sanders um, supporters being too smart for fake news, research suggests that whether you're liberal or uh, or conservative, you you don't believe or disbelieve fake news any more or less. It's more about emotional... Um, you know, reaction to it. If you're sharing something, you're sharing it to show that it feel the truth. There's truthiness to mm. it. It feels true. You don't believe it to be true. And yeah. BuzzFeed did an online um, survey of over a thousand people, and between fifty and sixty percent, depending on two, two different surveys, say that they get 
their main news from social media and Facebook, but only 16% say they actually trust the news. Mm. So we're actually taking people to be fools when they're not. Exactly. Why, why would I share a story? Am I sharing it in outrage? Am I sharing it in disbelief? Am I sharing because it's funny, because yeah. I believe it to be true? Why? The algorithm well, can't tell. Also, we, need to have, we need to be realistic about what the process of sharing actually involves in, in most cases. One mm-hmm. of the things about sharing is the majority of stuff that's shared is not shared. The pre- people who share it haven't actually read the article in the first place. Anyway, I know that because I've done I try not to do it, but I've done it once or twice <laughs> yeah. myself. There is this, even Mark Zuckerberg in a, in a lengthy tract which he published a couple of weeks ago has acknowledged that among the problems that, that, that occur is that people see a tasty headline, however yeah. you may want to uh, de- define that, and they share it. You know, regardless, they not, not only do they not check its veracity, they don't even read the bloody thing and then they share it on and because it's a classic clickbait headline and it gets people riled and it makes people angry, which is always a good, you know, gets the pheromones going, um, well then it gets, you know, gets shared again and again and again and again. So we are living in a world here where, you know, all the all the previous expectations, I completely take Harry's point that the idea that there was at some point some wonderful civic marketplace of ideas where objective empirical facts were teased out by, by fully functioning members of society. That's completely... That's, it was that's, the elite, that's, really, that's wasn't it? Nonsense. <laughs> and in a way, what we're doing is, some people say that what we're doing actually is coming out of the unusual period when our, uh, the, the, the way in which civic society worked was dictated by the exigencies of mass media, of analogue media production, big newspaper printing plants that sent the same small number of newspapers out to a whole society, small numbers of radio and television stations, which was the place where, where, where these things were trashed out, and that those days are over and that in a way we're now reverting perhaps to a digital medieval marketplace with, with everything that, that that implies, which might, you know, which, you know, which broad might sides. not have pleasant outcomes. <laughs> Ballots and broadsides. <laughs> So a regression rather than progression, perhaps. Um, well, there is, there is a fear, you know, that, that one of the consequences of the digital revolution will be the end of the Enlightenment. You know, people talk, yeah. it's become a cliche that, you know, this is a this is a Gutenberg scale revolution and that the changes that we're seeing in society at the moment driven by technology are as profound as the introduction of the of the of the printed word in the in the 15th century, which did lead to the Reformation, the Enlightenment and uh, several very long, unpleasant wars. Here. Now, I want to get to the mainstream media in a minute, but Maria, I just wanted you to give us a little case study here of um, an example BuzzFeed did of how hyper-partisan political news gets made um, in a piece by Craig Silverman. They took a little story about how Kellyanne Conway had been kind of sidelined by the White House and what they did to that story. Well, you've got what appear to be two completely opposing websites. One's called Liberal Society and the other is called Conservative 101. And you would think that these two takes on the same uh, news report would be completely different. And on first appearances, they are. They've got completely different headlines. But when you look at the content, a lot of it's overlapping the same kind of facts. But the shocking thing was that they're both owned by the same media company. Exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, it's it's all down to once again money. Uh, it's it's very easy to get that kind of clickbaity headline to get people reading this story. So you're being pulled in due to um, confirmation bias. So you know we've got our worldview and whatever we we're exposed to tends to reinforce that worldview, no matter what that content is. So you've got the liberal conservatives reading the same story, and it's firmly entrenching them more in their views. 
Yeah. And it's so easy to operate on that. Um, yeah, the conservative yeah. site uh, framed it as White House just gave Conway the boot, prepared mm. to be infuriated. The liberal one said, White House finally gives Kellyanne Conway the boot. Are you glad? Mm. And I think in this particular example, the liberal one got way more clicks than the conservative one. So it's just so interesting how it's commercially driven, not politically driven as such. And affect driven. Look at the emotions in those headlines, you know, yes. instead yeah. of immediately setting yeah. you up with how do you feel? Yeah. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Feel, yeah. Now, um, but we want to talk about the mainstream media because I think that Trump and that is able to very easily encourage people not to believe in the mainstream media because people already have very little trust in it. And I'm sure everyone at this table has their hobby horses about something they're repeatedly reading in the media that they know is wrong. But it's my show, so I got to pick my <laughs> hobby horse. <laughs> And it's the question about how repossessions are discussed in the media and in particular the number of repossessions. And I'm always reading stories like there's a tsunami of repossessions and 34,000 homes or 30,000 homes or 25,000 homes are at risk of repossessions. But I asked Seamus Coffey, the economist from UCC, and I think still a member of the Fiscal Council, um, yesterday how he reads what's being said in the media about repossessions. Well, I suppose the, the situation with repossessions and what's been said in the media is particularly consistent. So I suppose it's, it's been consistently wrong. Like since 2010, 2011, we've been hearing uh, repeated claims that this year there will be 25,000 repossessions. Uh, and they have been made on an ongoing basis. We've moved into 2017 and already we had the same claims being made that the 2017 will be the year of the repossession and the 25,000 repossessions will happen this year. Um, it just, uh, I suppose, it runs over from I suppose, the, the mortgage debt crisis we had from uh, the build-up to 2008. We do have significant numbers of people uh, in mortgage difficulties, but I think there's a lot of sort of extrapolation and sort of, to a certain extent, exaggeration being said uh, about the level of repossessions that are out there. And the media, in particular, seem to take the, the more bombastic, the larger the claims. Um, they, they'll quote them uh, without actually going into detail of what's actually happening. If we look at what's happened since 2009, the central bank uh, provides information on the actual level of repossessions that have happened. Uh, so we, every year for the last six years, we've had claims that there'll be 25,000 repossessions. If you were to add those up uh, over the six years, you're looking at 150,000 claimed repossessions about to happen. Um, the actual fact from the, the central bank is that we've had 1,200 uh, court-ordered repossessions uh, since 2009. So rather than having 25,000 in any given year, uh, we've just had 1,206 years. Um, yes, there are other mechanisms through which uh, mortgage holders uh, lose the the ownership of the property, so there, there can be uh, a voluntary surrender that doesn't have to go through the courts. And, of course, uh, people can sell properties to discharge mortgages. But when it comes to actually uh, court-ordered repossessions, we're looking at 1,200 over six years, an average of about 200 a year. It was, it was much lower 2009, 2010. It was under 100. Now it's rising up to maybe three to 400 per year. But it's a huge distance away uh, from the 25,000 claim we hear repeatedly in the, the media. Okay, so would you regard the tsunami of repossessions meme as fake news? Uh, well, it's, it's, it, you want to look at how you're going to define fake news. Um, like, to a certain extent, it's not that um, the claims we know that the repossessions have happened. 
uh, in the mean, the people making the claims are really careful. They're saying that they're about to happen. They're imminent. Uh, this tsunami is on the way. Now, this is the slowest moving tsunami that, that, that's ever been uh, described, given that we've been hearing about it for six years. So I'm not quite sure I'd go as far as it calling it uh, fake news. But again, when it comes to, I suppose, the, the media coverage of it, the, the willingness to accept these claims that 25,000 repossessions are on, on the way, but I was actually critically assessing them, uh, that would be part of the problem. Like if every year I had made suggesting that there be no repossessions uh, and there was the 1,200 that happened, uh, you wouldn't be long hearing that, oh, uh, your forecast or your prediction was wrong. You said there'd be none. Uh, we had 200. Um, and very quickly, you'd build up, a, I suppose, a reputation for being incorrect. Uh, but people who say that the 25,000 uh, repossessions are going to happen each and every year since 2011 get to make the claim every year. And I think in 2018, um, we'll hear the claim again uh, because they're unlikely to happen this year. Um, whether it's fake news or not, like the, the, clearly there are large numbers of people uh, in mortgage distress. Uh, but I do think we need a more sort of critical appraisal of what's actually happening in our court systems. And that's Seamus Coffey, the economist from UCC, talking about repossession. So, look, Harry, I'll go to you on that one. And look, as I say, that's just one thing that kind of pops up on my radar because I happen to know something about it. And you mm. could probably mention half a dozen others. The point being that some vested interest group will make some claim that goes entirely unta- unchallenged or fact-checked, you know, as a matter of course, from the news sections of the mainstream media. I think that the, that's a, it's an interesting example because I, I, I think that probably um, what we've usually talked about is the number of people who are facing repossession, for example, you know, yeah, not at necessarily risk. at yes. risk of repossession. Yeah. And I think we are talking about a genuine social and economic phenomenon of people in severe mortgage distress. Uh, I think to a certain extent, the, the concentration on it indicates the kind of the, the draw towards the questions of home ownership in this country as opposed to really probably what is a more dire emergency in the rental sector and, and in, in some respects is indicative of a media bias towards homeowners as opposed to home renters. So I think it is it is uh, complex. I wouldn't, certainly I wouldn't describe it as fake news. I think I would describe it as a kind of a phenomenon that's probably been oversimplified and as you say is based to a certain extent on the media acting as stenographers instead of as questioners of these things. I think if you, you know, if you went through all our newspapers and broadcasts and took out the material that was really just journalists repeating what somebody told them, probably somebody from PR or from government or from a corporation, you wouldn't have a hell of a lot left. I mean, that is that is effectively the kind of uh, spin that you get. Can I do one of my hobby horses Absolutely, here? Absolutely, yeah, yes. Yeah. Because I think it's been really interesting uh, this week uh, in relation to the water charges. Um, you know, we know from research on water charges campaign that they believed that the media was severely biased against them. You know, that that was... And, you know, for the most part, these were not sort of seasoned activists with an attitude towards the media. These were uh, people that began to be involved in politics through this campaign, and they were shocked at the media coverage of them. What really struck me this week in terms of kind of following up the question of that bias was how few headlines you saw that said stunning victory for popular campaign based in some of the poorest communities in Ireland, which is exactly what has happened. Instead, you got stories about Fianna Fáil cynicism, etc. So you have this, first of all, a bias towards making the story about what happens in Leinster House instead of what happened on the street. And secondly, I think you had an angle that effectively downplayed what was really one of the most extraordinary popular campaigns that's ever happened here, and a campaign that was downplayed, I think, right through its entire existence. Yeah, you see, 
other people wouldn't think that. They actually would think, I know politicians would think, RTE has been playing up this whole water charges thing and giving them too much publicity. Is that not a question of perception of coverage as opposed to empirical fact checking. But there's also there's the question not only of the volume of coverage but also of the nature of the coverage. You know, and we know there's been research done on the, the tendency of the media to talk about sinister fringes and to talk about manipulation and to kind of play up uh, incipient or, uh, or or threats of violence in demonstrations, both large ones and small ones. I mean, uh, which otherwise, other than talking about violence, the media largely ignored the extent to which communities were out forming human barriers to prevent meters being installed and things like that. The only reason they would ever bring it up is if somebody was complaining about that it was that it constituted a threat, but it actually constituted an extraordinary popular mobilization in, as I say, some of the most disenfranchised and poorest communities in Ireland. Okay, so Hugh, the journal has started this series, which I think is brilliant, fact checking. Yeah, it is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and they'll Mm -hmm. take so a politician says X, Mm -hmm. makes some kind of a claim, or David Hall says there are going to be 25,000 repossessions or whatever it is, and they actually go through it and I think it's amazing and I'm wondering why aren't we doing more of this uh, someone makes a claim on a radio programme like this and it's left unchallenged. Well, I think there's a number of things and uh, both yourself and Harry have touched on them. But just to go back yeah. over, over them v- very briefly, there is, um, I think there is a kind of a, a cognitive dissonance when we start talking about what what is newsworthy. What is, you know, what should actually be news? What should be on the front page of a newspaper? What deserves not to be in a newspaper at all? What's the ranking that's very important? It's actually one of the big differences, I think, between mainstream media broadcast and newspapers in the old world where a whole series of signals are sent out through the use of design and placement and duration and all those type of things about this is more important than that. Those are all value judgments which are made at a senior senior editorial level and a lot of those get wiped away by digital where it all becomes, you know, it, it, all, it seems indistinguishable in terms of the way you consume it. But why is, you know, why is, for example, the subject of repossession, why are editorial decisions made that, that this is actually incredibly important because it pushes a button for people somewhere. It is ultimately an editorial, and yes, Harry is right, partly an ideological, but also a commercial decision in the same way as the BuzzFeed example we were talking about earlier. It pushes people's buttons because these are heart-rending stories sometimes when they when, when they do actually happen. There's the much broader cohort of people who are live in fear or know people who may be living in fear of a repossession at some point in the future. So it plays on people's fears and it's dramatic and it's melodramatic and it brings tears to your eyes. Why do we decide, you know, that um, that you know that a, that a murder is an important thing in it, in its own right. Why do we wh- why why do we decide that certain levels of crime get huge amounts of reportage, but perhaps other statistics that show that certain types of crime are actually decreasing over the years? We've seen a lot of this with Trump, obviously, in the last few months. Are is, is much less important as 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 an item of news, and that's because part of what we do as journalists, although we don't like to admit it, is we are in the entertainment business, and we are looking to make emotional connections with people and to tell stories that somehow or another or that resonate with those people. And sometimes those impulses are actually in conflict with representation of empirical truths. Okay, so when you're sitting at your editorial conference um, in the Irish Times and there is a story about, say, repossessions or rural crime, and we actually have discovered that urban crime is rising much higher than rural crime, um, you know, is it that cynical where they're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, repossessions. Yeah, we'll do that. Or is anybody saying at the table, uh, should we actually check the statistics on this and maybe run a story 
uh, doing, uh, you I, know, I, a myth I, busting I, I, on it? To be honest, it? I would say both. Um, sometimes stories are in terror, you know, they're the, the, at, at an editorial level and at the level of the individual journalist and the story. <coughs> sometimes the story is interrogated, uh, you know, more and sometimes it's not interrogated at all. As Harry says, our newspapers well, and broadcasters are full of stuff which are essentially churned, re, re, re-churned press releases. You okay, know? So, so, and, so, and two more questions before I go to Maria on this. <coughs> one thing that's come up is the Irish Times will often run one-off opinion pieces, you know, say by somebody from an organisation or a mm. lobby group. And apparently those pieces are not fact-checked. So somebody could make a claim in those. And um, and I believe there was an official statement when TJ McIntyre queried this, where they said, no, you don't fact-check those one-off opinion pieces because you presume if the person is an expert in that area, then it must be right. Yeah, I saw that. Um, <laughs> and? Uh, I think that was a response from John McManus, the the opinion editor. Um, that's it, it, that came as something of, of a surprise to me. Um, if it's if if we're actually talking about factual representations as, as in statistics. It came as a surprise, but if John says that's the way it works, that's yeah. the way it works. And then I suppose you have to you, you have to ask, why does it work that way? Has it always worked that way, or are things changing? Because one of the one of the realities, and I'm not saying that John's statement about the way the opinion pages work is a direct result of this, but I, I don't think it's entirely irrelevant, is that uh, newspapers' revenues have decreased probably by 50% or more just in the last 10 years alone, probably more than that over the last 15 years. They're looking at a future over the next 10 years where they may not exist. Now, if you buy a newspaper tomorrow, it'll probably be about the same size as it was 10 years ago. So how has that, how, how has that managed to happen? And one of, the, one of the ways in which that has been achieved for the moment is a certain hollowing out of things which were regarded as essential previously, like gatekeepers, like fact checkers, like the number of eyes that, 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 that a piece of content passes before, before, it, before it's actually published. And that trend is exacerbated by the fact that in a digital world, the impetus is to, uh, to is to publish first and to publish fast rather than necessarily to publish, you know, to, to, to fact check as much as you would. Um, I I think that, I can't really speak for, for, for John in particular, but I think that the other thing is that newspapers are grappling with this uh, idea that uh, in the digital world you're providing a platform as well as being a publisher, that the, the, the space, is, space is infinite, <laughs> so you should be able to allow further voices on uh, mm. and, and, and that those people are responsible essentially for their own voices. It's not something I'm particularly happy with, and that's for this reason. It's not because I'm being po-faced or, you know... Um, anything like that about it. But I think that if we are to have a future of any sort, and by we I mean what's described as mainstream media, what I would still describe as the real media, because these other new media don't hold to any ethical guidelines whatsoever, whatever struggles we may be having with them. But the only real commercial future for us is probably as smaller, more focused organisations that are built on a smaller revenue model, but that are based upon retaining or regaining or building a much higher higher level of trust with our readers than we've we've perhaps had hitherto. And to be frank, we haven't done a very good job on that in our new digital publishing spaces over the last 10 or 15 years because they've tended to be kind of junior partners of the traditional legacy mm. print or broadcast element. And I think that message has got across to our users in lots of ways. And that's not just in terms of the content, but the user experience of the sites that we built for a long time, the way we festooned them with all these terrible ads that basically, basically sent out a subliminal message to people 
you know, we, we don't take this stuff as seriously so, as we take you know, the Marie, old Marie, what's your view on that? Now, I don't know your politics, but this sense that people have that, um, you know, journalists print the stories that personally interest them and often by omission. Uh, will leave out facts or simplify things to the point where they're wrong. So Trump is able to say it's fake news and that he's pushing an open door because people already have little faith in mainstream news. Well, I think a lot of news values are implicit rather than explicit. You pick them up as you go along, whether it's through journalism school or being trained up in um, whatever a print organisation or online um, I know that I started out in online first or online only actually it was my first job and then when I made the transition to print um, slash the hybrid of print and online my implicit news values changed because wow. I, I, well, I was I was trained to make sure that SE, everything was SEO search engine optimised so um, and th- this is something that's trained in online cor- online journalism courses. It's not like it's not some nefarious um, <laughs> a secret plan no, to just gig. get. It's, it's part, part of the gig. Of the gig. Yeah. So you're trained to write headlines that. No, it's before the word clickbait came along, but you're trained to write headlines that are user friendly, mm. and you're trained to write Keywords. leads that are. That are based really, yeah. for clicks. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, well, hold on a second. No, I, I will just say in relation to that, yeah. you, 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 one of the problems that newspapers had, and the Irish Times had this in the past, and we've really only been fixing it properly over the last three or four years, is we just regurgitated all this stuff that had been crafted and built for print, yeah. and we threw it onto the web, and we had headlines that weren't appropriate for the web yeah. because they were built for print and they made complete sense on a printed page, and they made no sense at all because they didn't give you enough yeah. information there is a on the web. To writing. So there were all kinds of good reasons for doing Absolutely. that stuff. You know? it, yeah, and that's how the modern list emerged as well uh, yeah, yeah. All, like anything that it does seem clickbaity but um, if you look at Mark you know Mark Little who started um, the social media agency Storyful um, he made a really good point that always sticks in my head he was talking about balancing journalistic um, not objectivity but I suppose um, just making sure people have a balanced media diet and balancing that with uh, profit so he said you need the cute fuzzy kittens to pay for the serious news stories. And that's always stuck in my head, even in terms of writing a technology or a science news story. I will try to think about the cute fuzzy kitten aspect of it because people... Is that a news value? Also, the idea idea that the cute fuzzy kitten is some terrible new phenomenon uh, generated by digital technology. I mean, you look at newspapers, a huge amount of... I started as a a movie critic and writing about arts and culture and writing about entertainment. Uh, A huge number of journalists aren't out there doing Woodward and Bernstein they're doing they're writing cooking recipes and they're reviewing restaurants and they're going on travel yeah if you look at the most popular newspapers from 1920 look at the most look at the Daily Mail or the in 1920 or the Daily Express or look at the Irish Independent in 1920 or God forbid look at the New York Daily News in 1920 there's no news in those papers, yeah. particularly like they're full of photographs, they're full of celebrity stuff, they're full of the equivalent of the cat videos. And it has, all, then, and yeah. it, and it has always mm-hmm. been thus. Yeah. So, uh, so there is always a danger when we have the kind of conversation which we're, which we're having here right yeah. now, that we just talk about journalism as it's just this, this, this holy grail of, you know, of deep, deeply full. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've, we've got this, thing, we've got this image that is kind of a late 20th century image of the Woodward and Bernstein, exactly, yeah. this high modernism of journalism that, we, that we're somehow seeing being destroyed, but it was only a brief moment in the history of the craft. Sorry, you wanted to ask yeah, me a but because, question. Yeah, because, okay, I totally take <laughs> your point on, you know, it was pretty much always thus, but isn't the point that we're supposed to be progressing? Well, we're supposed to be getting Well, but listen, the fact is, like, over the last 10 years or so, the vast majority of new news online providers that have come on stream are partisan. That is the, that you know, that the, that in effect, this 
the particular economics of <clears throat> attention, as we were talking about earlier, the economics of attention online seem to draw us towards wanting to click, view, like, share partisan information. You know, that is, and that, 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 is a, that is obviously a problem for traditional legacy media that like to present themselves as something otherwise. But, I mean, I, I clicked on the Irish Times homepage yesterday, and there, right on the front of the Irish Times, was a highly partisan attack on Ed Sheeran's new album. You know, very oh, yeah. obviously, <laughs> very obviously clickbait. Dearly. You know, like, it was really, like, I you know, get in, get in there and, like, Did you, did you, you know, read it, Harry? Did you click uh, on no, it? No, I, I didn't, actually. Because <laughs> I, I did! Because I, I did! And I was actually then kind of disappointed yeah. when I read the story. Yeah. It didn't live up to the it didn't live up to the headline and and I was uh, you know I was I was going to click on it then I thought no if I do I'm going to have to explain it to my 12 year old daughter and she's going to get outraged here so I decided against doing that but the idea that that you know that to keep up with the outrage machine, the partisan outrage machine, this is even what the Irish Times has to do on its own homepage. And, you know, obviously, I'm sure that that was widely shared on social media. And as yeah. Marie was talking about earlier, sometimes it was shared like, yeah, this is right. And sometimes it was shared like, look at this crap. And sometimes it was shared like the headline doesn't match up with the story, you know. And and, and so yeah. it's a it's a quite a, a, a complex. Sometimes I you know? click on the Kate Middleton stories and then I feel bad. <laughs> but well, yeah, but, 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 but it's like just these daily. There's a couple of things and, 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 and I think we should return to the partisanship thing. I'd yeah. like to return to that in a minute. But maybe just while we're on it, this question of journalism is entertainment and fluffy journalism and, and all those kinds of things. There is one one further effect that we've seen in the media landscape of the last 20 or 30 years. I think it, pre, it predates the Internet is a blurring of what used to be traditional lines between what was regarded as hard journalism, which dealt with certain kinds of subjects and <laughs> entertainment. On the other hand, is a book that's nearly 30 years old now called Amusing Ourselves to Death by, by Neil mm-hmm. Postman. Which kind of decries this phenomenon, and we see it in all kinds of ways. We see it where you know people in the United States go to John Oliver and John Stewart for their for their news source. Rush Limbaugh is as much an entertainer as he is a news broadcaster, if if, if, if not even more so. So that blurring, that uh, I, I suppose you could argue that that lack of seriousness, uh, I mean, has reached its apotheosis in the in the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency so far. Uh, Philip says, isn't it true to say that the vast majority of journalism is just rewriting the stories of others? Basically, lazy people all reporting the same story. Well, that's I suppose. Me. That's me all right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone else says, once the likes of Ed Morrow in the 50s and Walter Cronkite in the 60s started providing commentary or editorial on the news, the genie was out of the bottle. They may have been right, but it then opened up all sides to try and influence the public reaction and interpretation of news. Uh, all news has aspects of fakery to it, right down to tone and delivery. It's called rhetoric. And Mike and Limerick says, Sarah, watch the film Nightcrawler to see how news can be manipulated. And... Uh, Miriam and Leitrim says home repossession claims how about you use objective data such as the number of civil bill possession orders on the court listing throughout the country at any given month the absence of journalists in the civil courts throughout the country accounts for the unreliable information and I suppose that's part of the um, uh, the cutbacks and the, that the, the, yeah. the hollowing out I mean yeah. I think that's a, that there's a lot of unseen unglamorous work which was traditionally done by newspapers because it's mostly newspapers they're the ones with the big resources traditionally which was going and being present at council meetings yeah. court sittings and that was one of the first things to go and that is that, that that's a real problem I think for civic society Now Marie Boren so what has been the reaction of Facebook and Google uh, to their culpability um, in, in the change in, in public discourse Well talking about culpability first of all I think it's interesting to note that um, 
on in the run up to the US election, they counted the number of likes and shares and different interactions um, from fake news stories and compared it to real or mainstream news stories. And fake news stories on Facebook got 8.7 million likes, shares and comments from between February 2016 and November 2016. And that was in comparison to 7.3 million far less interactions and likes for uh, mainstream media, authentic, real, whatever you want to call it, news stories. So it is a problem. It's a problem. Mm -hmm. And Zuckerberg was reluctant to admit this at first, but now he's decided to get third parties in to help verify or fact check news stories. So what happens is if if enough people spot what they believe to be a fake news story, they go ahead and report it and or third parties like AP or NBC News will um, look through and CNBC is, will look through is it. that then an important shift that he's now acknowledging we're not just a platform we are a media company and we need to employ the ethics of being a media publisher rather than just being this neutral facilitator of other people's yeah. stories well they they have announced that they're kind of a hybrid media uh, company mm. before they they want people to recognise that they've invested a lot of money in it. They've got their own journalists and media researchers working in there. But we have to recognise that they're both, as you said, the platform and the content mm. providers in a way. So they they get to get all of these people to integrate their news stories in this walled garden that Facebook has a good juicy cut into the advertising from. So people get locked in there uh, and tend not to leave. They're yeah, they've got a very dominant position. Now, Harry, so we've got this whole Trump thing going on now where it's serious. You know, himself and Bannon are using chaos, distortion. And Derek Thompson, who's a senior editor at The Atlantic, said the fundamental bias in punditry is not towards presidential behaviour or against resistance. It is more simply pro-plot twist. You know, Mm. so journalists are just getting caught up in the whole drama Drama, of it all. How should they? And they're now players in the drama. Exactly. So how should they respond? Well, listen, I I, I think my friend, Karen O'Reilly, a great activist, uh, says, you know, um, why do we keep talking about the media as though they were there to provide a public service? You know, they're there to provide entertainment and they're there to make profits. I mean, we're here talking for the last hour on a radio station that's owned by one of the major media moguls, Dennis O'Brien, who's also a major shareholder in independent news and media, and we're feeding the beast. You know, how many ad breaks have we had during this program? I mean, it's fundamentally the, the, the notion that, you know, that journalists have this sort of higher calling is actually really part of part of the problem. I mean, I, I, and I kind of believe in the calling myself. I try to teach the calling, but I think we do have to understand it as a performance. Objectivity is a performance. Impartiality is a performance. And the role that journalists are trying to play in relation to Trump is, you know, they want to be back on the Broadway stage in effect. But the performance, that, that performance of objectivity is increasingly seen as a kind of a, uh, you know, a marginal part of the kind of the, the social uh, communication that takes place now in our societies. So uh, hold on, hold on. Hugh, does that, does that mean that you, that you don't believe in the calling at all? Or can the calling not exist? Oh, the calling, the calling can the actually, it absolutely can exist. It you can, see, I suppose you know? I think one yeah. of the things I think you're absolutely right about the, the nature of performance and the performative element of these things. It's also right to say that every piece of news is by definition fake news because we in journalism talk about a story and a story by its very essence, the meaning of story is you're creating a narrative, you're putting a narrative on, onto facts and you, you are therefore you're creating a fiction in order to tell a larger truth and that is true of news as it's true of all forms of, of human endeavour and storytelling. That's not a bad last word I wish we could go on but that is it for today. Many thanks to all of you as Stephen Jordan produced, Aidan McKelvey Research, Peter Malloy was on sound and thank you all for listening.